Hello and welcome to Ozpol Explained. I'm your familiar curly-haired host David, and this is part two of my interview with Professor Anne Toomey, a constitutional expert to discuss the Indigenous Voice to Parliament and its impact on our constitution. How will the Voice to Parliament affect Parliament, the Executive, and also the Courts? What scope is there for litigation and court challenges? What kind of powers could the Voice have? You've probably heard a lot of claims about the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. At its core, it is an advisory body for Indigenous Australians to provide information and perspective to Parliament so it can make better decisions. But a lot of people have concerns beyond that and what kind of impact that will have. So let's ask a constitutional expert what kind of impact it would have. If you missed part one, the link is in the description. It's about the purpose and function of the voice, but if you missed it, it's okay. We're basically here to learn about what is misinformation and what isn't. If you want to know more about anything that is said in this interview, don't worry, Professor Anne Toomey has a YouTube channel herself, Constitutional Clarion, where she goes into way more detail all about the things discussed here and even more. I highly recommend her as a source of information. But in the meantime, you're here, so hey, tune into my interview. Let's begin. Hi, my name is Anne Toomey. I'm a former professor of constitutional law at the University of Sydney. They now call me a professor emerita. I was a member of the constitutional expert group advising the referendum working group on some of the constitutional and legal aspects about the voice. Um, so from that point of view, I've had a, a, a semi-official role. I was also quite heavily involved in the, the instigation of the idea at the beginning. Quick and simple question. Will the voice to Parliament be a third Chamber of Parliament? No. What does a Chamber of Parliament do? Okay, it gets to initiate bills, it gets to debate the bills, it gets to pass the bills or refuse to pass the bills. This voice won't have any of those powers. It can't initiate a bill, it can't debate a bill, it can't pass it um, or refuse to pass it, nor can it even veto it. Uh, because all of those things are placed in Chapter 1 of the Constitution, um, and that's not being affected by this legislative amendment. This legislative amendment is going in chapter nine at the other end of the constitution. Um, and all those powers of parliament, etc., are going to be subject to this constitution. So subject to that separation of powers. Um, so the answer is no, it's, it's not a third house of parliament. Uh, it's not going to be elected as a house of parliament, doesn't going to have any of the powers or privileges of a house of parliament. Um, and by the way, Parliament's defined in Section 1 of the Constitution, and it's not altering that. So, no, not a House of Parliament. The amendment says that Parliament can alter the powers, functions and procedures of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Uh, basically, what does that mean? I see a lot of people uh, having concerns that if its powers are alterable, that could in theory mean almost anything. So, you know, the voice to parliament is not designed to have veto power or the ability to interfere with government business, for example. Uh, but people are like, well, it could be altered in the future. What if it could be altered to be a legislative body instead of an advisory body? Is that a reasonable interpretation or is this wildly just broadly misunderstanding uh, how limited the scope is of that amendment? Okay, well, here the magic words are subject to this constitution. So if you go into the third paragraph of it, it says the parliament shall subject to this constitution have the power to do blah, blah, blah. And so that makes it subject to a whole lot of fundamental constitutional things like separation of powers, federalism, um, implied freedom of political communication, a whole lot of stuff. 
And the separation of powers one is quite important there because it's subject to this constitution. It's subject to that separation of legislative power, executive power and judicial power. So in answer to your question, could you, the parliament, legislate to give legislative power to the voice and make it like a third house of parliament or something? The answer is no, because that would breach the separation of powers. It would be contrary to chapter one of the constitution, which exclusively confers legislative power on the parliament. So no, you can't do that. Equally, you couldn't give it judicial power. You couldn't turn it into a court because that too would be contrary to the um, constitution itself. It would breach the separation of powers. So those magic words subject to this constitution subject um, that legislative power that's already there. Um, uh, sorry, the legislative power that the parliament has, it subjects it to those kinds of constitutional limitations. Um, and for those people who are worried about this, well, you know, the answer is there already is a race power in the constitution. So under that race power, the parliament could already create a voice if it wanted to of a legislative kind. Um, and it could confer on it any other sorts of powers that it could under this provision as well. So this provision in allowing the voice to be given other powers um, is no greater than the existing power there already is under the race power. So does it enhance or Parliament's power in that regard? The answer is no, not really. Um, and are there still restrictions on Parliament's powers uh, because of the way the Constitution operates? The answer is yes. How could we contextualise the hypothetical altering of powers of the voice? Um, like what sort of theoretical powers could the voice be given or altered? Any organisation that gets created needs to have basic ordinary run-of-the-mill powers. So, you know, the power to um, employ people, the power to um, own property, you know, own your photocopier and your printer and your computer, that sort of stuff. So they're all those sort of basic run-of-the-mill types of powers that would need. Um, because the only power it's otherwise given by the Constitution is that power to make representations, that's it. Um, otherwise, everything else that it does um, is going to be need to be just set up by ordinary legislation. So basically, you're looking at any kind of organisation that's set up by legislation will be given a set of basic powers, so it would be those things. Uh, what about other extra special powers? Is there a reason for putting this in? Um, so what a lot of the Indigenous folk were concerned about when um, this was being discussed um, in the referendum working group um, was would there potentially be power in the future to deal with the states? Because one of the things that's all quite messy about this is, of course, let's face it, mostly Indigenous people are affected by state laws, not Commonwealth laws. And so this referendum is giving you this Commonwealth voice but the reality is the laws on the ground that affect Indigenous people most are state laws. Now, some states are setting up their own voice separately. Um, and so there's this real lurking question out there of, well, what's going to be the relationship between the Commonwealth voice and the state voice? Is it possible in the future that the Commonwealth voice might um, advise the states directly on things? Might they need a power to do that? Um, are we going to keep these things completely separate or are we going to start merging them? You might have a Commonwealth voice here and it might lead down to state or regional voices and then local beneath that. We don't really know how the structure is going to play out because 
um, there will need to be negotiations with the states and the states are going to need to have an idea of what the Commonwealth's proposing as well. So it's all a bit of a fluid situation. So I guess the key thing involved in that um, uh, Commonwealth conferring, you know, additional powers on the voice would be um, how that voice interacts with the states and territories in relation to state and territory laws. So something will probably be done about that in the future. But it may well be people just keep them all separate. Who knows? But that's up for Parliament to decide in the future. The Constitution isn't just about Parliament and, you know, legislation. It's also about the courts. A little imaginary scenario, right? The voice gives advice on a particular bill and it's like, you know, you should include these provisions or this kind of clause. This is the kind of impact it will have. And the Parliament with its own ability to ignore the voice, decides to do that and ignores the voice entirely. None of its advice is put into the bill whatsoever. Can the voice then go, hey, you, you know, you either ignored us or didn't properly consult us and challenge that bill in the courts? Can the voice take Parliament to the High Court? Well, it could try, but it would fail. Um, so that's the short answer. Um, anyone can always, you know, rock up at the court and with a crazy idea and people do it all the time. I have to say there's an awful lot of litigants in person who come up with um, strange ideas and challenges. But uh, the, the reality is if you go on the basis of, you know, um, uh, hundred odd years of jurisprudence at the high court level in Australia and, you know, a couple of hundred years before that and a, and a British system of, you know, a few hundred years before that as well, all of them, the courts in all of those centuries have uh, said that no, uh, the courts do not interfere with the internal proceedings of parliament because the democratic system that we have um, says that it's up to parliament to decide what it puts in legislation and the courts won't interfere by saying, oh, you should have considered that and, you know, you must um, change your law to do that. Now, courts do interfere later on if the law is invalid, so they can say mm, that law you, you put there was invalid because it didn't comply with the Constitution or whatever, sure. But you can't have um, a court coming along and saying, I'm sorry, you didn't listen to these people, so therefore your law doesn't work, um, doesn't work that way. Uh, the courts won't interfere with that internal process of Parliament itself deciding what to put into a law or not. Um, so no, you know, even the um, um, the opponents of it um, uh, pretty much accept that the voice um, would not be able to interfere with parliament and how what parliament decides to put into a law. 99% uh, of the argument that's been around has been on the other side, the executive government. There's more legitimate arguments there. But on the parliament side, uh, it would be um, the most incredible backflip and, and change from the, the system of parliamentary democracy that we have for a court to start interfering with the internal working of parliament. So that's just not really going to happen. Let's expand that bit about executive government. What actual hypothetical room is there for litigation? There's more space and there's better argument in relation to executive government. Okay, so this is where it gets tricky. It's quite hard to do this in a short way, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Uh, so there's this thing called administrative law, and that says that when government decision makers make decisions that have effects on particular people, like, for example, um, uh, refusing a visa, Right. Um, so we're not talking here about high government policy, you know, like uh, 
you know, what your settings are for, you know, the economy, etc. We're talking about decisions that affect individuals. Um, so when making those decisions, you have to make them fairly. And under administrative law, that says, well, you need to, you must take into account things that are relevant considerations and you must not take into account irrelevant considerations and you mustn't be biased and you mustn't have an improper purpose, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So one of the arguments here is that representations made to the by the voice to a government decision maker when making that kind of a decision might be regarded as a mandatory relevant consideration. Now, how do you decide what is a relevant consideration? Well, normally it happens because you look at the legislation that has conferred the power onto the decision maker to make the decision. And often you'll see when a power is conferred, it says, right, you've got this power and you need to take into account X, Y, and Z and not take into account A, B, and C, and you need to do it in this particular way. So legislation will ordinarily be quite specific about that. And the courts will then say, and because you ignored what that legislation said you had to do to make the decision fairly, then sorry, you got you, you have to remake the decision, taking into account those things you were required to take into account. Now, is it the case that, uh, sorry, and sometimes even if that's not said specifically, a court might imply that something is a relevant consideration, okay? But if Parliament then said, oh, hey, court, you got that wrong. We weren't intending to imply that when we gave that decision-making power to decision-maker over there, then Parliament has the power to change it. Okay, so all of that is utterly ordinary. That's just part of the ordinary law, okay? So it is possible in some circumstances that where a particular decision-maker, say you're a decision-maker making a decision about, you know, whether to bulldoze a site that has... Um, you know, artwork of significance to cultural significance to Indigenous people on it, right? It might well be that a court says, yes, you do have to take into account representations made by the voice, either because the statute tells you so or because it's necessarily implied in giving you that decision that you do that, right? And that'd be fine. Then they would just have to remake the decision and take into account those things. It doesn't mean you have to define in the way that the voice wants you to find. It just means you just have to take it into account. Now that's ordinary and it's controlled by parliament. Okay, so it's hard to get fussed about that because it happens every day. Where it gets trickier is where the opponents of the voice argue, well, we are, take that up a notch. So we're gonna argue that a court is going to draw an implication not from the legislation that confers the power on the decision maker, but from this new provision in the constitution itself. And so they're saying, well, maybe the high court will draw an implication from this new amendment in the constitution that says every government decision maker making every single government decision has to take into account um, uh, what the uh, representations by the boys and moreover has to ask it in advance before making any decision and wait for it to make a decision and give it all the information it needs to make a decision. And then they argue that that will gum up the whole system of government and government is, will collapse and will all, I don't know, fall into the sea. Um, so that's the argument that's being made. So the question is, well, A, has that ever happened before? Well, no, the High Court's never 
drawn an implication from the Constitution that something is a mandatory relevant consideration. It got asked once a few years in a Banerjee case um, a few years ago, and it said no. It said that mandatory relevant considerations are things that you find in the statute that gives the decision maker the power. We don't make these mandatory from the Constitution. Okay, so it's already said that a couple of years back, but opponents are saying, oh no, they will make up this new thing. And you think, okay, if you're gonna draw an implication from the Constitution, where are you gonna get it from? Because what are the things the High Court will consider? Well, we'll look at the text, right? There's nothing in the text that says there's an obligation on the executive to take into account uh, one of these representations or to give you know, um, uh, advice in advance and all that sort of stuff. So there's just no words there. So they've got nothing in the text. Okay, so beyond the text, what do you have? Well, you have intention, all right? So you might draw the implication from intention. But if you look at every single piece of evidence of intention, so the Minister's second reading speech, the explanatory memorandum, the Solicitor General's opinion, um, uh, even the report of the, the, the Parliamentary Committee, all of them say there is no intention for there to be that kind of implication. So for the High Court to draw this implication, it's got to defy the text, right? It's got to defy express intent that is given by the people who were framing the Constitution and putting it to the people, it's got to defy its own precedence, right? Um, and then it's got to decide that there is a necessary implication that we um, operate in a way that is completely dysfunctional or unable to work properly because you'd have to advise the voice of every single government decision before it's made, which would just flood the voice with um, uh, so much material that wouldn't be able to operate and so the whole thing would be silly. So do you really think the High Court's going to do that? So there are always people out there confidently saying, oh, well, the High Court will go out and do this. But, you know, it's just a bit bonkers. You'd have to think they'd all gone mad. Um, have we got to the point that we distrust the High Court so much that we seriously think that it's going to go contrary to the text of the constitution that the people had agreed to and put in there, go contrary to the intention, contrary to its own previous precedents, you know, and deliberately make a system dysfunctional? I mean, I just don't think so. So there you go. My view, no, it's not going to happen. But I can at least see, I can at least see why people are concerned about it. Thank you very much for your time and your expertise. It has been incredibly enlightening. You're welcome. So the one thing I would advise people, I mean, I think this is really important, um, is that the most insidious argument in any referendum is don't know, vote no. OK, because that's treating you as an idiot. If you don't know, what do you do? You find out. OK, you are capable of finding out. And hey, you've listened to this video. So full marks to you for, for going ahead and doing that. But really encourage your neighbours and friends to find out as well, because Voting in a referendum is a sacred constitutional responsibility. It is one of the most important responsibilities of citizenship in this country. We are trusted with our constitution and the ability to change it in a way that most other countries do not trust their people. And if you're going to be entrusted with that power, you have to take it seriously.
and that means actually learning about this stuff so you can give an informed voice. Don't fall for the don't know, vote no, okay? Don't know, find out. You can still vote yes or no, but you should give an informed vote. So in doing that, look to serious sources. So look to um, the sources in universities um, uh, where people have actual expertise on these issues and not just the people who are making bold assertions on um, the internet about what the High Court will find or not when, you know, frankly, they haven't got a clue and I'll bet you most of them have never even read a word of the Constitution. So ANU has um, some good FAQs, so have a look for them. And University of Melbourne has done, I think it's called something like Conversations with the Voice as well. That's also on YouTube. So they've got um, a range of different experts coming in and looking at it. Watch on Constitutional Clarion um, for more details if you want more from me exercise that sacred responsibility seriously. Thanks. Thank you so much for Professor Anne Toomey for her time and expertise. As you heard, if you don't know, find out. There's plenty of resources linked in the description to help you understand the voice better, including Constitutional Clarion. So as Anne helpfully just pointed out, it's pretty clear. The voice will not have veto power or legislative power, and it won't be able to use the courts just to undo laws it does not like. That's not how it works. Instead, it is a dedicated advisory body for Indigenous people. So people in my comment section can stop arguing with me, pretending I don't know what I'm talking about. It's pretty clear you heard it from someone who's very qualified. The voice does not have veto power. And there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this has been useful. Share around, watch Constitutional Clarion, subscribe, comment down below what you would like to learn about next, and make sure you are enrolled to vote because it is up to all of us collectively to decide whether or not we want to change the Constitution. That is our right and our responsibility as a country. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will see you next time.